He wrote a song based on the genealogy of Jesus. The, uh, the rest of the staff gave me a hard time. I wanted this to be like the video before the sermon every week. And they're like, no way. No way we're doing that. And I said, last week of the genealogy series, we're having it. So this was my pick for the video. We're picking up part four on our series Through Them and For Them, where we are looking at different points within the genealogy of Jesus. And so far, we have looked at people like Tamar, who she, uh, we see in her story, God redeems some of the worst and lowest moments of her life and uses them for his purpose of bringing about the Messiah. We read about Rahab in Jericho, whose response of faith to hearing about the God of Israel is what saved her from the destruction of Jericho. Last week, we read the story of Ruth and Boaz and how God is active and working in our lives even when we don't see it and that we are invited to join in on the process. Today, we're going to jump into the genealogy of Jesus starting at verse 11 and into verse 12. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1. If you want to follow along, it'll be up on the screen as well. So what it says, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Some great names in there. Now, we have been kind of tracking through this series where we, we looked at Tamar, we looked at uh, Rahab, we looked at Ruth. The next kind of logical step for a lot of people is to assume the next person we're going to talk about is another woman named Bathsheba in this story. But we're kind of pulling like a, a, a curveball here a little bit. This isn't a series where we're specifically just going to look at the women in the genealogy, but interesting moments in the genealogy of Jesus And I think this moment is incredibly significant. We're going to look at this theme of exile this morning. But before we get there, I want to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Are you okay with going down a rabbit hole with me? I want us to talk about something that needs to get pointed out. If uh, if we look at this Matthew chapter 1, and the verses here in 11 and 12... We read about Josiah being the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Here's the problem, is Jeconiah wasn't Josiah's son. So what do we do about that? In fact, Jeconiah is the Greek version of a name uh, which is often Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin, depending on your translation, it may kind of try to smooth over some of this dissonance and have different names. In fact, there are no kings in the, the line of Judah, which we read about in Kings or Chronicles, that are actually called Jeconiah in the Hebrew. So what we're looking at, what seems to us, is actually looks like a bit of a discrepancy in Matthew's genealogy. What happened is that Josiah, who was a great king of the people of Judah, he had a bunch of sons, and one of his sons succeeded him on the throne named Jehoahaz. There's going to be a lot of great names. A lot of them start with Jeho something. Jehoahaz inherited the throne 
from Josiah. He was killed by the Egyptians, and the Egyptians put his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. And then eventually, his son Jehoiachin becomes king, who then is captured by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians put his uncle Zedekiah on the throne. None of these people are mentioned. There's kind of this smoothing over of Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. Jeconiah is like a nickname or the Greek version of the name of the third one in that row. So what we're having here is Matthew is, we're calling it telescoping. Almost like how a, a collapsible telescope, it can go out like this, or you could slide it together and it all fits together. This is a way where Matthew is intentionally kind of compacting the genealogy to kind of skip over some unimportant parts, so to speak. Where he's saying, I really want to focus on these things. I'm smoothing them together. So Jeconiah becomes almost a stand-in name referring to both Jehoiakim and his son Jehoiachin, two generations, because it's a son and then his son becomes king, and then one of his uncles become king. For him, it's just easier to say Jeconiah and the brothers at the time of the exile. Now, you're like, why, why are you telling us this? Why bother? And I think one of the reasons for me is because we could look at this, or people might point this out to us and say, oh, this is a mistake that Matthew made. The genealogy doesn't line up. There's something wrong here. Either Matthew used wrong sources or he made a mistake or the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew lied to him. But I want us to understand that in these moments where there's some discrepancy or where things look like they don't entirely fit together, that there are good answers and reasons for why these things happen. On our next slide, I have one of the the things that Matthew explains what's going on here. Uh, in Matthew 1.17, he says this, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. For some reason, for Matthew, having sets of 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to the exile, exile to Jesus, is important for him there's not actually 14 generations in all of those. You can go through and read in Matthew 1, it's like between 13 and 15 for each one. And he also collapses and telescopes certain generations in order to try to fit this pattern of the 14. So whatever Matthew is doing here, as he's writing this, having 14 generations is important in each of these sections. And there's a few different explanations of why he shapes it this way that he has reasons for doing it, things he's trying to to point out. One, some people say the number seven is incredibly important. It's a sign of completion, right? And to have three sets of 14 means you have six sets of seven, which means the seventh seven would be Jesus, that he's kind of the symbol of completion of that. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way that a lot of scholars talk about it is with the concept of gematria, which is how the Hebrew alphabet was actually used as their number system. They didn't have like 
Arabic numerals like we do of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, they would ascribe uh, a number value to each of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so the name David, if you put together the Dalit Vav Dalit of David, the numeric values are four, six, and four, which equal 14. So many scholars say Matthew purposefully pieced this genealogy together to have 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations of a way of like artistically saying it's really important that you know that Jesus is a descendant of David, which is a key part of his, of his gospel and who he's painting Jesus to be and explaining him as the Messiah. The reason for this rabbit hole. You might say, I don't care about Gematria. You're not supposed to show Hebrew on Sunday mornings. It's not important. I've been falling asleep for the last five minutes. The reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see that there are sometimes reasons for the discrepancies we see in Scripture that we're not going to notice firsthand. And there are going to be times where you are reading the Bible where you are going to see discrepancies and you're going to say, I don't know what to do with that. Or you're going to have moments where some of your friends who may be skeptical or critical of faith know these things or have found them on the internet and are going to confront you with, hey, here's a problem in the Bible and and are going to kind of poke holes in some of your understanding of the reliability of Scripture. And I want to in some ways, expose us to some of these places where we might say our vulnerabilities, so to speak, so that we can understand that, no, it's not that Matthew made mistakes or that this is unreliable, but he is giving us a, he's shaping this with a purpose. That he is, he's not drawing this genealogy in the same way that Ancestry.com is painting a family tree. That he has a theological purpose with his genealogy. And so it's not going to answer all of the questions that a modern reader who's looking for the Ancestry.com version of a genealogy to look like. It's going to answer more of the questions and the longings of the first century Jewish readers who are trying to understand whether Jesus actually is a descendant of King David and therefore fits the bill of the Messiah. We can't bring our modern assumptions and expectations to an ancient text in the same way. Let me give you like a, an illustration of that. A 1969 Mustang is a beautiful, phenomenal vehicle. But if I, am, if I am basing what a great vehicle is on its um, crash safety test, on whether it has, it has a backup camera or a fuel injection event, uh, engine or power windows, like... A 1969 Mustang is not going to be a great vehicle in my eyes. But I'm coming to this and wondering whether it's a great vehicle based on what I'm going to try to pick out in a minivan for my family rather than the sports car that it was built to be in the 60s. And so when we come to Scripture, sometimes we're expecting it to read like a history that we would want to read about in a modern history textbook. Or we want the genealogy to look like what we would find on Ancestry.ca or 23andMe when I'm putting in my saliva and sending it away or whatever. But this is shaped differently. It's shaped for the audience that originally reads it and their assumptions and their questions that they are bringing to the text. 
And I want us to understand that because there are a lot of ways where people are going to try to poke holes in the reliability of Scripture. I have a lot of friends and people I went to Bible college who are dismantling their faith because of things where they're, they're seeing what they perceive as holes in the reliability of Scripture. And I want us to have some exposure therapy to some of these things to be able to see that there actually are reasons and theological purposes and ways that these narratives are shaped that are more in line with the author's intention than our expectation. Does that make sense? Does that make the rabbit hole worthwhile? Don't answer that, actually. <laughs> so today, well, let's get back into uh, to where we're actually going today. Today, we're not talking about a person specifically in the genealogy. We're talking about an event. We're going to talk about the exile. And the main question for us this morning is, why is this exile so significant? What's so significant about the exile? Well, the exile of of the Jewish people to Babylon was really the low point in their story. It really is the low point in the Old Testament. If we can kind of paint the picture and go back. Remember, God makes the promise to Abraham, right? You will have many descendants. They will inherit the promised land. Then they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God sends Moses to set the people free, the crossing of the Red Sea, wandering in the desert. They don't end up going to the promised land in that generation. The next generation comes Joshua leads them, conquers Jericho, they head into the promised land, and they settle there. We read about in Ruth how uh, the, the people were scattered throughout the land, that it was judges who were the ones that were ruling over Israel at that time. And eventually they say, we want to establish more formally as a monarchy. We want to have kings like the nations around us. And eventually God Uh, appoints kings to rule over the people of Israel. And the history of these kings is really, it's really interesting because it's like the faithfulness of the king to God is kind of like a litmus test of the faithfulness of God's people. Like it, it becomes an indication of the spiritual temperature of Israel. If this king is faithful to God, it, it's a, it's a, a signal of, of the temperature of the spiritual climate of Israel at the time. And so we see throughout Israel's history, these kings that are faithful to God and kings that draw people further and further from God by adopting the worship of foreign gods, by leading them into immoral practices, by not obeying God's law and worshiping other idols. Eventually this descends to a point where God says, because of your unfaithfulness to me, I'm going to allow the Babylonians, this growing massive empire in the east, to come and to capture the promised land. That that this land that I promised you is not going to be yours. You're, you're, You're being brought out of the land of promise. That it was his punishment on them for their unfaithfulness. And so we read during the the times of of these kings, the the grandsons of Josiah, that uh, the Babylonians come and they conquer the promised land. They deport a lot of the, the people, especially the more educated, the skilled laborers, and the people that were left were just those who were there to, to till the land and to produce crops to be deported to Babylon. It's a low time in Israel's history. 
And this exile was a time where for 70 years, people were not living in their homeland. For 70 years, this this area that God promised his people was no longer their home. For 70 years, Jerusalem laid in ruins and the temple was destroyed. For 70 years, the people lived with a sense of we are being punished by God. We're being influenced by cultures around us that are not faithful to God. For 70 years, they had a sense of abandonment, a sense of how could God actually let something like this happen, this this land that was supposed to be a place where, where God's glory dwelled in his temple lies in ruins. How could this happen? And I know some of us, we have experienced seasons of our lives, and maybe even right now, where we resonate a little bit with the the sentiments of exile. I mean, obviously not to the point of we're being deported into a foreign empire, but but maybe we are experiencing a sense of, of abandonment or distance from God. Maybe it's because of of loss. Or a sense of grieving where I'm wondering, where is God in the midst of the darkness that I feel around me? Where is God in light of what has been done to me? Maybe some of you, you feel a little bit of what the the Jews in exile felt of, of living in the midst of a culture that is not faithful to God. Where many of us who, who have grown up in, in previous decades lived in a culture where there were cultural assumptions around Christianity and moral values that that we felt lined up more to to our faith. And we've seen an increasing change in those cultural values where we feel like we're exiles a little bit. Maybe you're sitting here in a place of wondering, how could any of this be part of God's plan? Some of us who have experienced difficulty with with church and God's people and the pain that that has brought, how could this be part of God's plan? Many of us wrestling with the ongoing reality of this pandemic and wondering how can God be at work in the midst of this when this is still going on 22 months later? Maybe for you, this feels like a season of exile. And the question is, where is God in all of this? What I find interesting, though, as we talk about exile while reading Jesus' genealogy, is we see that this time of exile highlighted in the genealogy in Matthew 1 is not a time where Jesus' ancestors abandoned faith, but it's a time where they actually rebuild faith. If we look at the genealogy in Matthew 1, we read that Josiah, who was the king, was was a faithful king. He rediscovered the law. He implemented it in the life of the people of Israel. It was a time of, of spiritual revival among God's people. However, his sons and grandsons, all the ones whose names start with Jeho something, and Zedekiah, they're all kings who are unfaithful to God. 
They're all kings who likely are riding on the glory of their father or grandfather and his spiritual legacy, but they don't feel like, like this faith is important to them or they need to invest in it. It's just been this thing that our family does. And eventually they're taken into exile. But what we read in Matthew 1, after the exile emerges a generation that Shealtiel, who was born to Jeconiah, has a son named Zerubbabel. These names, as funny as they are to pronounce and sound like baby talk, Zerubbabel is an interesting man because his name literally means born in Babylon. Like he is of the generation of those who, like they don't know what the homeland is like. They were born in the exile, in the midst of Babylon. But Zerubbabel becomes a governor of Judea who leads the people back into the promised land to help rebuild the temple, to rebuild the promised land. And to start this great revival and investment and reigniting of the faith of God's people that was not seen in the generations before the exile happened. There was something that took place in the exile, in being out of the land, in being away from the temple, where a refining and a rebuilding of the faith that was lost took place. Zerubbabel comes back. And the first thing that he and his people do is they rebuild the altar of the temple in Jerusalem so that they can start sacrifices. Their priority in coming back to the promised land wasn't let's make as many houses or rebuild the walls so we're safe. Their priority is we need to worship God. We read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah or the prophet Zechariah at this time who are, who are talking about what's going on in this period about how there is revival and renewal of the covenant, how there's a reading of God's law where people are realizing, wow, this is God communicating to us. There's this reigniting and rebuilding, not only of the place, but of the faith of the people. What we read about the exile in Jesus' genealogy is God took a family that was running from God and used the exile to shape the future generations to be rebuilders of the faith. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are in a season of exile where God is trying to get a hold of your attention and trying to shape you in the midst of this season so that you can be a rebuilder for generations moving forward. The times of difficulty are not a time to abandon faith, but a time to be used by God as a rebuilder of faith. It makes me think of Paul's words in Romans 5. I have these up on the screen where he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Map that onto exile. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. God used exile 
to shape a generation moving forward? What if God is using our season of exile or these these senses of things aren't how they're supposed to be, things aren't ideal, I wish this pandemic was over, I wish we weren't in the midst of a culture that is rapidly changing? What if God is using these things to invite us into being rebuilders of faith for our families, for our communities. We also learn from Zerubbabel's story of coming back and rebuilding that if we're going to rebuild faith in the midst of exile, we can't do it on our own and we can't do it our way. Zechariah, who is one of the prophets at the time, God speaks to him and he says, I have a word specifically for Zerubbabel, specifically for the one who's leading the charge in rebuilding the land and the temple and Jerusalem after the exile. In Zechariah 4, it says this, And so he, God, said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord Almighty. I think this is significant, particularly knowing where Zerubbabel comes from, right? This guy was born in Babylon. And he's lived most of his life immersed in Babylonian and Persian culture where power is the main value. Where your ability to conquer other lands and kingdoms shows your favor in the eyes of their gods. Where might is right. But God is saying to Zerubbabel through Zechariah that if we're going to be rebuilders of the faith and of the promised land, moving forward, we're not doing things Babylon's way. We need to do things my way. We need to do things empowered by my spirit. This is is like part of why we do things like our, our kingdom and culture series. Where if we're going to be people who are rebuilding our faith, if we're going to be people who are a strong witness in the midst of our culture, we need to live life the way of the kingdom by pursuing the Spirit, not just by the ways of our culture around us. We need to acknowledge where those distinctions are and what Jesus says we're to do in light of the culture around us. So the question for us, Will we let God use our times of exile to shape us into being rebuilders? Will we see these difficult seasons not as a time to abandon faith or hope, but a time to press in and say, what is God trying to do in me that is going to affect generations moving forward? And will we rebuild Christ's way rather than culture's way? Will we say, I need to lean in, Spirit, to what you're leading me to do, to the life that you're calling me to live, rather than what everybody else around us is doing? What I love about this theme of exile is it's not just something in the genealogy. It's not just something of one specific moment in Israel's history. But we see exile as this grander theme in all of Scripture. And we see Scripture pointing to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate solution to exile. 
An exile bigger than 70 years in Babylon. An exile bigger than than this feeling of 22 months in a pandemic. It's the exile of sin that brings us out of fellowship with God and out of the Garden of Eden. The, The kind of grand cosmic exile that humanity experiences. But what we read about Jesus is Jesus is is one who came to seek us out. Jesus is one who came, who experienced exile in his sense of abandonment on the cross to be able to end ours. Jesus is one who, greater than Zerubbabel, leads God's people into the promised inheritance to be those who participate in a new kingdom. Jesus is the one who works to build us into resilient rebuilders in the midst of the exiles that we experience. And what's so interesting is if you read about the Jews in Jesus' time, even though they were back in the promised land, even though the kind of technical 70 years of exile was over, they still had a sense that the things aren't right That even though we're back home, even though the temple's rebuilt, even though there's walls around Jerusalem, even though the economy's thriving, we still feel like we're in exile. Because they were still under the powers of of foreign kingdoms. Even when Zerubbabel and those went back to rebuild, they were still under the Persians. And after that, the Greeks take over, and they're still under the, the empire of the Greeks. And after that, they're still under the power of the Romans. And they still feel like, things aren't right. Exile is still taking place. Christmas is that in the coming of Jesus, exile is over. It means that we're no longer far off, no longer sent away, but in Emmanuel, God has come close. God has come to be with us, to meet us in our exile and bring us in. I think this is what the genealogy ultimately points to is Jesus as the solution to that. We read about in Revelation, at the the very kind of end of the story, so to speak, is that God brings a new heavens and a new earth to us. Rather than us being exiled from home, he brings home to us. Christ brings us out of exile back home. He's the answer to exile. He's the one who gets us through in the moments that we have. And he's the hope that we have at Christmas. Can you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for how you have sought us out. How you have come near to us even when we were far in our sin. Jesus, I thank you that you are the one who who meets us in the midst of our exile. You shape us into those that that you are wanting to use moving forward. And I pray, God, that in our seasons of of exile and what we're feeling, that we would lean into the work that you want to do in us in these moments. That we would say, we will lean in, we will do things by your Spirit not by the way of the world around us. God, I I pray for us to have a confidence that you are doing something great 
even when we're tempted to ask, where are you in the midst of this? May we have eyes to see and may we join in on what it is you're doing. Amen.